Hi, I'm Rebecca Onion, a staff writer at Slate. Back in 2015, I co-hosted this podcast with my colleague Jamel Bowie as we explored the history of American slavery. This year, as we commemorate the 400 years since the beginning of American slavery in 1619, we're re-releasing this nine-part series to the public. To learn more about the series and to support more of this work at Slate, please visit slate.com academy. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the fourth episode of The History of American Slavery at Slate Academy. My name is Rebecca Onion, and I'm Slate's history writer. And my name is Jamel Bowie. I am a Slate staff writer. In each episode of this series, we're looking at a different chapter in the history of slavery in America and starting the conversation with the life of a single person. This episode, we're talking about Joseph Fawcett. In 1773, Thomas Jefferson inherited ownership of Elizabeth Hemings. Eventually, more than 75 of Elizabeth's descendants lived at least part of their lives enslaved at Monticello, Jefferson's Virginia plantation. One of these was Joseph Fawcett, Elizabeth Hemings' grandson, who was born in 1780. It's believed that Joseph's father was William Fawcett, one of Jefferson's white employees. When Joseph was around 9 or 10 years old, Jefferson sold his mother, Mary, but he wasn't willing to let Joseph go along with her. As it turned out, this wasn't the last time that Jefferson's sale of slaves would separate Fawcett from his family. By the time he was 14, Joseph Fawcett was one of the more efficient boys working in Jefferson's experimental nail-making factory. He then trained in smithing, ultimately rising to become the plantation's blacksmith. An overseer described him as a very fine workman who could do anything it was necessary to do with steel or iron. Fawcett was allowed to keep some of the money he earned at this job. He married Edith Hearn in 1802. Soon after, she was sent to Washington, D.C. to learn how to cook in the French style in Jefferson's White House. In 1806, Fawcett traveled to Washington to see his wife without permission. Jefferson objected, considering Fawcett a fugitive and chastising him for the action. Joseph and Edith Fawcett's separation was to last until 1809, when Jefferson's D.C. household rejoined the Monticello contingent in Virginia. When Jefferson died in 1827, he freed only five enslaved people, including Fawcett. But most of Monticello's slaves were sold to settle Jefferson's considerable debts. This is how Joseph Fawcett's wife and ten children came to be sold at public auction, along with Jefferson's furniture and farm equipment. Joseph Fawcett set up a blacksmith shop in Charlottesville. It would take him more than 10 years to earn the money he needed to buy back his wife, five children, and four grandchildren. The group moved to Ohio together in 1840. Joseph Fawcett died in Cincinnati in 1858. In episode four, we're talking about the lives of enslaved families on plantations during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. We're going to use one famous plantation as a case study, Monticello, the Virginia estate owned by Thomas Jefferson. And then, later in the episode, we'll take a closer look at how slavery tore families apart and the emotional history of that trauma. But first, let's talk a little more about the life of Joseph Fawcett. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Jamel. So, in a conversation about people who were enslaved at Monticello, Joseph Fawcett's probably not a name that people are really familiar with. I think it's probably safe to say that most people have heard of Sally Hummings, who had a long-term relationship with Jefferson and bore several of his children. So it's probably helpful to know that Sally was Joseph Fawcett's aunt. Um, uh, The relationship between Sally Hemings and Jefferson has been much discussed 
especially among historians in the 1990s. And Annette Gordon-Reed, who we'll be speaking with later in this episode, has done a lot of work unpacking the specifics of their relationship. But what about you, Jamal? What's your knowledge of other members of the Hemings family? Had you heard of Joseph Fawcett before? I had heard of Joseph Fawcett once before, and that was years ago when I was a student at UVA and I had gone to Monticello for a tour. And the tour guide kind of casually mentioned Joseph Fawcett. And I was, honestly, I was probably flirting with someone, so I didn't really, <laughs> wasn't really paying attention. And that is the only time I've ever heard the name, uh, other than now. What was that like to go to Monticello as a student? For UVA students, it's sort of one of the things that you do. Sometime during your four years at the school, you you go to Monticello and you see the grounds. And depending on your disposition and the people you're with, it can either be look at how pretty everything is. And it's very beautiful mm -hmm. um, at Monticello and the surrounding area. Or if you have a different, I'll call it mindset, you might be more interested in sort of the experience of enslaved people, sort of the incongruency between the beauty of Monticello and the fact that this was a plantation. You know, it, it varied. I would say that for your typical student at the University of Virginia, it's much more of the Monticello is a very beautiful place. Because mm, there's a lot of Jefferson pride there. Right. You know, Jefferson's like our patron saint. Right. You know, you write about politics for Slate. So there's obviously a lot of discussion of founding fathers. <laughs> We're sort of like pointing to founding fathers as examples for things or arguing over what they believed in. The sort of history of founding fathers in slavery is something that gets trotted out occasionally <laughs> to make a point of one kind or another. In the last couple years, I think, and I, I have totally done this, so I'm not going to separate myself from it. I think bringing out the fact that many of the founding fathers owned slaves, referencing that has been an attempt to push back on the weird hyper-deification of the founding fathers that you saw around the Tea Party movement to say that yeah. these were not saints, they were men. They were men of many different opinions and morality and moral standards. It's interesting when I was doing a little research for this episode, I was, you know, I was checking out these sort of lists of which founding fathers owned slaves or which didn't. For lack of a better word, there's different ways that they were slave owners. You know, there was people who owned one person and were really conflicted about it. And then there was people who owned tons and weren't conflicted about it at all. Or <laughs> I always am sort of interested in, in thinking about whether that range you know, means anything to us today or whether it's just, you know, you owned a slave, you owned a slave. That's it. I think that range means something if just to contextualize how different slavery was for different kinds of people in the period. And that our image of slave owners having these massive plantations, that's a minority experience among slaveholders. Most people, I mean, even Jefferson, after his father died, he had 40 slaves, which is a lot. But not the, you know, massive plantations worth of slaves that I think is they have in popular memory. I will say, though, and this goes back to visiting Monticello, not this time not as a student, but with my parents, I remember being on a tour and someone in the audience asking about the Hemingses. And this may have been uh, three or four years ago. And the tour guide was extremely awkward about it, <laughs> um, kind of hesitated. And it was like, well, you know, the historical evidence is mixed and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think there's a really fraught relationship there. Monticello, you know, a site of public history, its relationship with the Hemings question. And I think in recent years, they've become much more forthright about it. But I can see in the past, it was a really 
awkward situation. Right. Yeah. Right. I think pretty much everyone now agrees that the evidence is clear. I <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> believe that's something that a combination of DNA and the sort of like careful historical work of people like Annette Gordon Reed has done for the Hemings Jefferson question. You know, one of the major things she does to try to prove the relationship between the Hemingses and Jefferson in her first book is to point to things like, you know, all of Sally Hemings's children were conceived when Jefferson was at Monticello, sort of line up the evidence like that. And that combined with the fact that the DNA is clear, <laughs> kind of puts paid to the other theories on the topic. So then it becomes a question of how are you going to talk about it? And we talked to uh, Professor Gordon Reed, who published her first book on the Monticello and the Hemingses back in 1997. I was really excited about this interview, and I'm really excited to have all of you listen to it. But before we get to it, we have to take a little break. As always, if you want to write to Rebecca and me about this episode, send us an email at historyacademy at slate.com. We would love to hear from you. And we've launched a private Facebook group that has a ton of activity. We post links, we post new material, uh, and it's just for Academy members. You can find it at facebook.com backslash groups backslash History Academy. And this week, if you come to the Facebook group, we'd love it if you would answer a great question that Jamel actually posed on Twitter. And he asked his followers, where are places where civil war and slavery memorializing is done well and without sugarcoating the hard parts? You know, he got a bunch of responses, but we're really curious whether if you guys have visited, you know, a historic houses or plantations or museums or just cities that have interesting memorials, we would love to hear about them. And if the memorial that you saw was overseas, that's also really interesting and we'd like to hear about it. So we're talking a little bit about the way that enslaved families were able to be families in slavery. And we're doing that by talking about a pretty unusual family, the Hemingses of Monticello. And to approach that family and learn more about them, we're talking to Professor Annette Gordon-Reed of Harvard Law and Harvard University. I decided to write about the Hemings family as a whole because I thought it's an interesting story. You have the capacity to do that because Jefferson was an inveterate record keeper and because they are in one place for five decades. Yeah. So you don't have a story of family disruption to the same extent that you would in other uh, enslaved families. And I also think that Sally Hemings, uh, well, I'd put it this way, makes much more sense in the context of her family, mm. in the context of a web of relationships that Jefferson had, not just with her, but with her mother and her brothers and her nieces and nephews. So it's a group of people. It's a group story. It's, so that's why. To illuminate Tom and Sally, but also to tell the story of these people who led interesting lives and were sort of emblematic of slavery in one way, but not in another way, in other ways. How are they not emblematic? Um, what, well, not, that's not the way to put it, not stereotypically emblematic. Right. Most of them, because of their connection to Jefferson, were not fearing that they were going to be sold to any place. They were, in the main, mixed-race people. They were written about, at least some members of their family were written about in newspapers. Sally Hemings, her brother Robert was referred to in newspapers. They existed sort of in a public consciousness that i pretty clear that they understood. And that would not have been the case of most enslaved people. You talk a lot sort of about Jefferson's uh, relationship to them 
and their sort of status at Monticello. What was their status there, or how how was that status marked? Well, status. Uh, well, maybe that's a fraught word. <laughs> yeah, I, to, I know. It's a, yeah. it's, a fraught, it's a very fraught word because of their connection to Jefferson through his wife and Elizabeth Hemings and her relationship to John Wales, Jefferson's father-in-law. They were people who were given the benefits of whatever benefits could be in slavery. Yeah. Not benefits. The women were exempted from field work, for example, whereas everybody else had to go to the fields at harvest time. Members of the Hemings family, the first generation of Hemings family, the males hired themselves out and kept their money, which was actually against the law. But lots of times Jefferson did not know where they were. Hmm. As they were sort of wandering around you know, Virginia hiring themselves out as, you know, traveling valets and tour guides and various things. So they had a different kind of life than other enslaved people at Monticello. And then a number of members of the family become artisans, John Hemings, Joe Fawcett, the objects of special training. Now, there were other people on the plantation who did as well, but no other family that had so many privileges, Jefferson would have called them, You know, Rebecca, I was genuinely surprised when uh, Dr. Gordon Reed said in the interview that members of the Hemings family just didn't get special treatment at Monticello, but they were kind of allowed to do their own thing in the nearby area. Like she said, hiring themselves out as valets and tour guides, that isn't just different relative to the enslaved people at Monticello, that's different relative to enslaved people period. You know, we spoke in the last episode about the changing laws around both enslaved people and free black people. And around this time, there was like a clampdown on the freedom and mobility of enslaved people in Virginia, and that Jefferson was willing to sort of defy that or, or go against it for some of the people on his plantation was interesting to me. Yes. And it's especially interesting given the extent to which Jefferson had a bit of a preoccupation with control in so many areas of his life. She writes in her book about Jefferson's kind of OCD-ish mind (laughs) um, and how that contrasts with this relationship he had with the Hemings family. I think I refer to him as being controlling about the nail factory where Joe and his cousins and other young boys, and these were actual boys, were working. You know, he counted the nails and he kept abreast of them. But that's because he liked to count things. <laughs> you know, I mean, now he counted the peas in a bushel of peas to see how many were there. I mean, he liked <laughs> to do that kind of thing. There are two periods of time when he's doing the nail factory and when he's in retirement in the 1790s, he decides, I'm going to be a great farmer. So I'm going to pay attention to every single thing. And so he goes through this phase where he does that and then he kind of <laughs> goes back into politics and drops all of that. So he was controlling in certain bursts, but overall, if he delegated to his overseers, he was a a person who wanted order in his life. But I I wouldn't say that among uh, plantation managers, he was obsessively controlling. You sort of write about him as a, rather than a punisher, kind of more of a manipulator of emotions. How do you see that in the record? Or what are some instances where you see that? He says that that's what he wants to do. Yeah. He pays people what he calls gratuities. We would call you know, wages. We should have called them, but real yeah. wages. But he would call them gratuities to try to incite the stimulus of character is the, the phrase he used. But his overseers 
did resort to the whip. You know, he left operations to them, but his self-image was of someone who preferred incentives to to actual punishments because he thought that that would make people more likely to work harder and do things better if you give them incentives rather than punishing them. But that doesn't mean that there was no, never any punishment that went on at Monticello because that's just not true. So the words uh, patriarchy or paternalism, these sort of words relating to fatherhood or like a fatherly leadership that I, I hear sort of bandied about when discussing a slaveholder's attitude or a, a certain ideology associated with slaveholding. Is that mm-hmm. something that Jefferson participates in? Does he see himself as the father? So he thought of himself as a patriarch. Paternalism is a bit different. The thinking is that that's a, a philosophy that comes into play much more during the antebellum period, when people shift over from slavery as a necessary evil, which is Jefferson's generation, to his really his grandchildren's generation's view that slavery was a positive good, and therefore an African race was, they would say, designed for slavery. So with paternalism, people turn around and say, oh, we're all just one happy, big happy family here, just, you know, living and loving on the plantation. Uh, we take care of them as a father would take care of their children, and they are happy in their station. A patriarch is sort of halfway there. Okay. <laughs> in between that, a patriarch feels that he has would have a duty to and he had the right to rule, and he would have a benevolent rule, but there's no thought in Jefferson's mind or the 18th century people's mind that slavery was a natural order. He thought that Enlightenment values would eventually lead to the end of slavery. The paternalists of the antebellum period say, this is going to go on forever and ever, and ain't it grand? The patriarchs are different than, say, 17th century Virginia people, Jefferson's father's generation, who really understand that this is a captive nation of people, and they want to kill us. And Jefferson pretty much believed that, that he accepted John Locke's formulation of slavery as a state of war between master and slaves. Jefferson's way of dealing with that was to suggest that, well, the best that we can do now is to be as, quote-unquote, good to enslaved people as we can be until that moment when this is over. Rebecca, the patriarchal stuff was new to me. I never should have heard those terms uh, used in reference to slaveholders, and specifically, I hadn't heard them in reference to Jefferson. And I know that it's something that interests you. Well, it just really helped me understand the way she sort of formulated a a generational evolution in thinking among people who thought about slavery and slaveholding a lot really shed light on it for me. I think maybe because there's so much paternalism in 19th century slavery. And again, this goes back to our chronology problem that we've been talking about all through this series, which is that the 19th century becomes like the image of American slavery, absent like careful thinking about it. But I feel like I thought about paternalism as sort of a dominant ideology of slaveholding, but this sort of reformulation of it really helped me, made me think about the way that the ideology had evolved rather than just sort of this, everybody acted like a black people or enslaved people were inferior all throughout the time. That makes sense. Yeah. What's interesting is that Jefferson had this sort of patriarchal kind of uh, proto-paternalist ideology, I'll call it, 
um, while at the same time, he was pretty forthright about his views on the moral status of Africans relative to, to Europeans. Um, when I was at UVA, I took a couple classes on American political thought. And my first engagement with Jefferson as a slave owner and not just as a um, revolutionary thinker was, I guess, a famous passage from his only book, The Notes from the State of Virginia, when he describes Africans. You know, I read that as well in my graduate classes. And it's I think, often exerted for good reason. So we will uh, post a link to some of the excerpts in our show notes, but do you want to read a little bit of it? I think I'll read his first two points in this description, which kind of will communicate exactly how the rest of it goes. So Jefferson says, the first difference between whites and blacks, which strikes us is that of color. The difference is fixed in nature and is as real as it is seat and cause were better known to us. And is this difference of no importance? Is it not the foundation of a greater or less share of beauty in the two races? Are not the fine mixtures of red and white, the expressions of every passion by greater or less suffusions of color in the one, preferable to that eternal monotony which reigns in the countenances, the Im that immovable veil of black which covers all the emotions of the other race? Add to these flowing hair, a more elegant symmetry of form, their own judgment in favor of the whites, declared by their preference of them as uniformly as is the preference of the orangutan for the black woman over those of its own species. The circumstance of superior beauty is thought worthy of attention in the propagation of our horses, dogs, and other domestic animals. Why not that in of man? So with yeah. that passage, <laughs> Jefferson... <laughs> Uh, basically articulates the view that blacks are less attractive than whites, that blacks are so dark skinned that you can't even really see what their emotions are. And that we know that blacks are less attractive than whites because blacks themselves, according to Jefferson, uh, have a preference for the beauty of whites. And he compares it to the preference a primate may have for the beauty of uh, African women, which it, it, you can see the logic that Whites are sort of a higher form of life, followed by blacks, followed by primates. Yeah. As our second guest in this episode talks about, there's a way that enslaved people figured out how to cover their emotions up because they were enslaved and they didn't want to, you know, provoke somebody or get into a confrontation with somebody. You know, there's a sort of careful art of, you know, maintaining an immovable veil for greater safety, which is not a result of, you know, being more beautiful or less beautiful, but a result of their social position. And Jefferson seems blind to that, you know? He seems blind to it as well in the very next passage. They seem to require less sleep. A black, after hard labor through the day, will be induced by the slightest amusement to sit up till midnight or later, though knowing he must be out with the first dawn of the morning. They are at least as brave and more adventuresome. But this may perhaps proceed from a want of forethought, which prevents their seeing a danger till it be present. When present, they do not go through it with more coolness or steadiness than the whites. They are more ardent after their female, but love seems with them to be more an eager desire than a tender, delicate mixture of sentiment and sensation. Their griefs are transient. Those numberless afflictions, which render it doubtful whether heaven has given life to us in mercy or in wrath, are less felt and sooner forgotten with them. In general, their existence appears to participate more of sensation than reflection. Yeah. Like you said, Jefferson seems to be <laughs> incapable of seeing that certain behaviors may relate to the fact that these people are enslaved and not because they're sort of naturally less, naturally less forethought or they don't want to sleep. I mean, and 
in many cases, the only time that people had to themselves was after work. Why wouldn't you want to have that time to yourself. Right. You know, I would sit up till midnight too, you know, if that's if that was my situation. That relative, <laughs> you know, relativistic point of view on it is not something that he seems to be able to participate in. And I'll note that in these descriptions you can kind of see the stereotypes about black Americans that would just to some degree persist to the present, right? That black Americans have less impulse control, that they are more sensual or physical. You can see these ideas about the qualities of Black people uh, because of their Blackness. These ideas exist in the 18th century. For sure. One of the most interesting things about our interview with Dr. Gordon Reed was the little bits of meta conversation we had with her about her approach to talking about the Hemingses situation. Because there's a certain way in which in talking about the way that they lived and in talking about Sarah or Sally's relationship with Jefferson, there's sort of a danger that she faces, which is that she is a little bit talking about degrees of slavery. You know, that's my shorthand phrase, not necessarily her phrase. But there's this way that, you know, in some ways she's talking about people who, quote unquote, didn't have it that bad, unquote, which is a way that present-day racist apologists would love to talk about slavery, like to say, for some people, it was okay. Right. Yeah. That some masters were good. Not all masters. Yeah. Hashtag not all masters. <laughs> An actual hashtag I've seen. I mean, this is a, we're making a joke, but it, it's a joke based on real life. There is a great Twitter account called African American History Fail or at AFAM Fail. The account is a woman who gives plantation tours, and she will often tell stories about talking about slave owners um, being abusive or the nastiness of being enslaved. And occasionally, a tourist will say something like, well, not all masters could have been like that. You know, someone like Annette Gordon-Reed, who writes about this, has to face this problem all the time. We're talking about it in a political atmosphere, in an atmosphere where people are still you know, fighting the Civil War and what slavery meant. You know, you hesitate to use words that I know people out there will latch on and say, see, slavery wasn't all bad. I mean, even though that's ridiculous. Yeah. But people are always looking for a way to ameliorate the situation, to make it look as though it was not a horror show and it was not oppression. So, yeah, I do pause over those words, but by the same token, if you want to describe individual people's lives, you have to come to grips with the fact that some people went through that in a different way. And not any of them, judging by, you know, Joe Fawcett's uh, behavior after he is freed, attempting to purchase his family. Nobody thought that slavery was the ideal condition. They all wanted out of it. Right. No matter how, quote unquote, privileged they were, the Hemingses wanted out of slavery, as anybody would. In our interview with Dr. Gordon Reed, we talked a lot about the Hemingses in a general sense, uh, and not so much about the specific relationships of different Hemingses to Monticello and to Thomas Jefferson in particular. And one of those relationships, the, the most famous one or, or infamous one, is Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings, which is hard to approach in any way other than you know looking at this as a case, an all-too-typical case of rape and sexual assault. Yeah, and this is one of the things that is, I think, really hard, maybe for historians to talk about, maybe for everybody to talk about. 
which is that, you know, rape was prevalent in slavery. In our interview, she brought up the famous case of a woman named Celia, who was enslaved at age 14 and at age 19 in 1855, after five years of being raped by her owner, she killed him and was put on trial, which was sort of a famous case at the time. And so she sort of compares or talks about the difference between a case like that and what happened with Sally Hemings, which is obscure and difficult for us to understand, in part because when Sally Hemings and Jefferson first got together, or when we think they first got together, there's no actual evidence besides her pregnancy, she was actually in France with him, and she could have stayed in France and become free based on the laws in France at the time or the prevailing attitude towards slavery in France at the time. You know, we don't know why she decided to come back. And so that's one of the things that Dr. Gordon Reed does so well is to try to talk about women's relationship to their own bodies in slavery on an individual basis. When you're speaking generally, I have no problem saying that, you know, 99 and 9 tenths of people, you know, th- we're talking about rape where you can use the same standard that people use with respect to statutory rape and say, if you can't say no to sex, then it's worth treating all of any sex that takes place as a form of rape when people have that level of power over other people. Yeah. I understand that. But if I'm, once I decided to write the story of individual people, mm-hmm. I have to think about the interior lives of the individuals about whom I'm writing. And if I have, as I mentioned in the book, someone like Celia, mm-hmm. who kills her master after years of sexual abuse, who you know, he, he buys her and then on the way home rapes her. I mean, it's clear he's bought her, this teenage girl, for sexual purposes. He can't even wait to get home. And then you have Sally Hemings' situation that's more ambiguous because right. this starts when she's in a place where she has an opportunity to take freedom. But when she comes back, she's totally in Jefferson's control. So I have difficulty assuming that all these women thought about their lives in the same way because yeah. they were owned by the men with whom they had children. I think that there has to be a way to make those comparisons to ask the reader to think about the possibility that in some situations, people were doing things that they thought were advantageous to them in much the same way that women might make an advantageous marriage, that they're thinking about it in different ways. And then you have somebody like Sally Hemings, whose father was white and whose grandfathers were white. Why would we assume that she would think that the only suitable person for her would be a black man, just because we have a sense of racial, you know, people today may have a sense of racial solidarity, you know, that looks back at this and says, all those people are your enemies. But why would she think that? And if a white man was an acceptable partner, I mean, why wouldn't Jefferson, as white men went, why wouldn't he be as good as any other one? What power women had came through their fathers or came through they're the men that they were attached to. You just the question is, can we talk about this without giving ammunition to people who say there was no rape or this is okay because everybody was just it's like club med, you know, that this is everybody's right. just seeking everybody out. I mean you trivialize the sexual abuse of of large numbers of African American women by focusing in on on this one thing. That's the fear. But on the other hand, I, I do think it's worthwhile to talk about individual lives of slavery. I mean, so this this sexual abuse between masters and slaves, sort of unusual family situations, uh, mm-hmm. like the one 
the the Jeffersons and the Hemings has had had to have been you know relatively common in the in the areas where slavery had taken a hold. Was this something that slaveholders tried to kind of hide from the public as much as they could? People didn't talk about it. Right. Let's put it this way. I'll pull back from that. People in Jefferson's community talked about the Hemings family. There a number of blind items in newspapers in the 1790s. You could figure out sort of like page six of the post. You could figure <laughs> out what they, they were talking about. So people know about it. And visitors to Monticello talk about it. The family doesn't talk about it, but it's something that's known in the community. It's kind of hard to hide kids. Yeah. And this is what makes it different from, you know, sort of the English upper classes who, if a maid got pregnant by a man and, you know, was bought off or left or whatever, the kid was white, right? Unless he happened to look like a person. But mixed race people are identifiable. People knew that this stuff was going on, and Northerners coming down to visit Virginia in particular were shocked by the number of mixed-race people that they saw. Adulterated (laughs) was the phrase one person used. Right. Would critics of slavery use this sort of thing as as part of their critique? Yeah. The misuse of African-American women, the rape of African-American women and slave women was used as by abolitionists to talk about one of the endemic features of, of slavery in the South. And the weirdness of someone selling their daughter or, you know, their brother or whatever. Well, people did that. I mean, it was interesting. A, a member of Jefferson's family said that he had grown up hearing this story as an example, the Hemming story, as an example of Jefferson's goodness hmm. because he freed the children. Yeah, And so the demarcation between a good slave owner with with slave children and a bad one was one who didn't free children and one who freed children. As we were wrapping up our conversation with Dr. Gordon Reed, I asked her about sort of Jefferson standing in public memory. I've referenced multiple times as far that I went to UVA. And one of the things that was interesting is the best word about Jefferson's uh, standing at UVA is that I think a lot of students had a hard time reconciling this very brilliant mind and this vital person in our history, and also Jefferson, the slaveholder, Jefferson, um, the innovator in the art of slave driving. Uh, And I asked Dr. Gordon-Reed if she had thoughts on this challenge of reconciling the two Jeffersons into a single uh, person. Well, I... I have difficulty understanding why it's such a hard thing to reconcile. (laughs) I mean, you know, he wasn't born in New England. People don't usually go far from what they know. Yeah. Just think about what's done 100 years from now. People will look back on and say, why on earth do they think that made sense? Or Global warming is real. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or whatever, insert your thing here. Yeah. Whatever thing is there. Yeah. I just don't think it's a worthwhile struggle, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it was what it was. My husband hates that phrase. That was less than admirable part of his life. You just have to to accept that. I mean, hero worship is not a useful thing. Heroes are always going to have feet of clay at some point because they're human beings. All right, Jamal, what do you think? Does that make sense to you as a stance? Or how how do you, what do you think about uh, what Dr. Gordon Reed says? It does make sense to me as a stance. I think as consumers of history in the modern period, 
And this is similar to being consumers of any kind of, you know, fiction, whether whether they're plays or, or novels or movies. Um, we tend to want to have things be pat, to have them wrapped up neatly. But the best history is looking at the broad picture as well as these individual, very human lives, and human lives just aren't that neat. And so I'm okay with looking at Jefferson and seeing his many different moving and contradictory parts and saying, well, that that's just Jefferson. Um, and we should try to understand each of those parts and not necessarily feel that they have to cohere into a single whole. Totally agree. And I feel like that's one of the major differences between an academic approach to history, at least as I see it, and a more popular one is that quite often academics are just like, eh, <laughs> they shrug and they say, okay, well, the contradiction is what makes it interesting to me. The contradiction is what makes it fruitful as a topic of conversation. And we may not ever know, you know, we'll never have a verdict, really. Because what's the fun of a right. verdict? You know, I, I see where she's coming from. In our next segment, we're going to talk about family separation and the different ways people coped with being sold away from each other. I will be talking to Heather Andrew Williams, but before we get to that interview, we have another break. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider joining Slate Plus. Slate Plus members help to support projects like this series, and they get benefits like ad-free podcasts and bonus episodes. In fact, Slate Plus members even get two additional episodes of this very podcast series. To listen to those and support Slate, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash academy. Now we're going to talk a little about the role of family separation in slavery. So Joseph Fawcett, when Jefferson died, was set free, but his family was sold. So this is something that is obviously at the heart of a lot of people's experiences in slavery, but that I feel like we don't talk about enough. <laughs> I, I would agree that I don't think we tend to think about not just family separation, but what that feels like. I mean, today, yeah. you know, if you are uh, away from your partner for a month or two months for whatever reason, you can you can talk to them, you can give them a call, you can, mm -hmm. there are ways to, to stay in touch. Then if your child or your spouse was taken from you, you have no idea where they've gone. Yeah. They're effectively dead. And the sympathies of those around you who are in control of your life are not with you. Right. <laughs> they don't care. Right. I read a really interesting book by Heather Williams, who is teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's a presidential professor and professor of Africana studies. And she wrote a book called Help Me to Find My People, The African-American Search for Family Lost in Slavery. So I spoke with Heather a little bit about the different ways that people would be separated. So she mentioned sale as one major factor, you know, one major instance in which people would become separated. But she also mentioned that if a white family would decide to move, right. so if a family decided, oh, this tobacco plantation in the Upper South is no longer fertile, right. and, you know, we think we have better prospects at West, they might take some people with them and not others. Obviously, again, the enslaved people have no control over that. Right. And then there's the matter of inheritance and wills. When a slave owner died, that was a time when separations would take place because in a will, the owner might leave 
some people to a daughter and her husband, others to a son. You know, if he had six children, enslaved people would get divided up among them, and they would not necessarily honor family groupings. Really, you're looking at value. So in a slave society in America, Wealth was in land and it was in people, in people's bodies and in in the work that they were able to do. You're going to divide people up according to their value. A man of age 25 is going to be worth more than a man who's 60 or a woman who's 25. Women are going to work, but they're going to expect more labor from a man. Was it common at all for children to be sold parents. My impression is that it wasn't really at all that this was a bit of a burden for whoever was for the enslaver in question. Yeah, I think there's sort of a variety, but Heather sort of made it clear to me that really it was the discretion of the person who was buying um, and the discretion of the seller. So there are some instances in which there's woman who is being sold who does have an infant with her and then the infant becomes a problem when the coffle of people for sale is moving south and the the seller just says, ah, like bother. I'm just going to take this baby and like leave it with someone for free because I don't want to deal with this constant crying. (laughs) Yeah. My sense is that there are slave owners who thought of themselves as benevolent in some way, like, you know, tried to make provisions for people to be sold together, but that that's really just up the discretion of the seller and the purchaser. So for every slaveholder who tried to be Benev- as as yeah. benevolent as uh, he could, there there's probably another who just didn't particularly care either way. Right. Or feels that they're forced by economics to do something. Right. You know, they might say, like, we need to sell, like, the, the amount of money I need is the amount of money this woman is going to bring, and I'm going to keep the kids because they're going to be laborers for me later. Right. You know, I'm not a bad person, but I'm just forced to do this. Right, which which of course is a, a really terrible rationalization. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure when kind you're in amazing. that position, you can rationalize away a lot. Right. Once there is a price put on someone, and once their money that their worth is tied in with the rest of your net worth, or there's no place for you know sentimentality and thinking about the way these things worked. One of the things I found really interesting about Heather's work was that she looked at a lot of WPA narratives in order to see how people felt about being sold. And and for those who aren't uh, familiar with your New Deal lingo, the WPA is the Works Progress Administration, and it funded a whole bunch of different projects across the United States, parks, bridges, buildings, libraries, schools, um, and also a project to record the narratives and voices of formerly enslaved people who are still living. Um, Many of these people were quite young, uh, when they were slaves, they were little kids. Some were actually very old. There are a couple from people who are, you know, over 100. And so they were adults yeah. during the Civil War, which is really remarkable. There's some availability of the audio online right. and also transcripts. So we'll link to that in our supplemental material. But Dr. Williams, she she used these. Yes. And she used these in particular to find out how it affected the community in a given place or and the people in a given place when sale was rumored and when sales happened. For instance, when an owner was very, very ill, the enslaved people in the slave quarters, so in the community of slaves on that plantation or that farm, the adults knew that if the owner died, that meant that they were vulnerable to sale or to being divided up among um, his heirs. People talked about being children and overhearing these conversations among 
their parents and other people in the slave community talking about what they thought would happen and whether they would be able to stay with their families or who would go with whom because they might know the heirs, right? And so they're wondering, where am I going to end up? And so the children start to pick up on this anxiety and this fear that the parents and the adults in their community were experiencing and expressing. Very often the children themselves didn't understand it. Then at the moment of separation, you see people talking about how excruciatingly painful it was. Somebody might describe his mother as just throwing herself on the ground, begging, pleading, crying, asking that she get to keep at least one of her children. Please let me keep my children. And so you get that kind of pain and those expressions of grief. And then for a while, some of the children still don't grasp it. And there's this this awareness that dawns on them over time. So it's when they're physically removed from the parents, when they're being taken away, when they're gone, you know, that night, they realize what's happened and they're wondering, you know, will I see my my parents again? Will I see my mother again? So grief, anxiety, hope. There's a lot of hope um, that I saw where people are hoping that they'll see their families again. They're those who could write or those who could get access to somebody who would write on their behalf, writing out of this hope that this letter might reach the loved one. Rebecca, you read one of these letters, right? You have an example of one of these letters, and it's incredibly heartbreaking, so I will let you read it. Yeah. So this is a letter from Violet Lester to her former mistress in It was written on August 29th, 1857. She had known this woman for a really long time. You know, Heather talks about how this was actually her playmate, you know, someone that she'd known when she was younger, which was kind of like a common practice on some plantations where a same age enslaved person and a kid would play together when they were young. And then maybe sometimes the enslaved person would become the maid of the girl. You know, Lester wrote... My loving Miss Patsy, I have long been wishing to embrace this present and pleasant opportunity of unfolding my feelings since I was constrained to leave my long-loved home and friends, which I cannot never give myself the least promise of returning to. She lists a bunch of different times that she'd been sold since you know, Miss Patsy had sold her. And at the time she wrote the letter, she had been gone for about five years. But most importantly, she's asking her old mistress to buy her again, basically, because she wants to be reunited. So this is the hope that Dr. Williams is talking about. So she writes, my dear mistress, I cannot tell my feelings nor how bad I wish to see you, an old boss and Miss Rahul and mother. I do not know which I want to see the worst, Miss Rahul or mother. I have thought that I wanted to see mother, but never before did I know what it was to want to see a parent and could not. I wish you to give my love to old boss, Miss Rahul and Balaam, and give my manifold love to mother, brothers and sister, and please to tell them, write to me, so I may hear from them if I cannot see them. And also, I wish you to write to me and write to me all the news. Probably the saddest part of the Violet Lester letter is the part where she asks her old mistress to try to figure out what had happened to her daughter. You know, there's a little chain of custody that Violet knows as to what happened to her. She says she left her in Goldsboro with Mr. Walker. I have not heard from her since. Walker said he was going to carry her to Rockingham and give her to his sister. And Violet's current slaveholder has told her that he would buy her if Violet could figure out where the daughter was. So Violet is asking her old mistress to try to track the daughter down. And letters weren't the only way 
former slaves and enslaved people tried to communicate with loved ones. There was um, a healthy network of word of mouth as well. The slave trader who did a particular route going from um, Virginia to, let's say, Charleston, might pass through certain towns on a regular basis. And sometimes they would have an enslaved person as an assistant. And so that person would carry news to certain communities or to certain people. If you, you saw that person, you might get some information. There's a man named Sella Martin who recounted being sold away from his mother and his sister. I think they went to three different owners, partly because he says that he and his sister were the children of the owners, the white owners' relatives, and the family was embarrassed by that, and so they sold, sold them away. He said a man came to town, uh, a black man came to the place where he worked. He worked at a hotel and said he was looking for this boy, that his mother was looking for him. And when the boy identified himself as the person he was looking for, the man handed him a piece of cloth. And when he opened it, there were some beads inside, some blue beads. And he recognized the beads because they had belonged to his mother's mother. And he said, we had never had time to make a plan that this is something she would send, but he knew them and he knew that they were very important to his mother and that she had sent them as something that would let him know that this really was coming from her. So she's sending a message through this enslaved man and the message is through these beads. And he actually, this boy ran away and got to her. He had become literate. He said he took some paper and a pen with him because he wanted to be able to forge a pass so that he and his mother could move about, could escape. But when, by the time he got to her, she had despaired of ever being able to be free. She had tried to escape. Once she found out where he was, she had tried to get to him. She was caught. She was beaten. And so she had given up. So she said, I'm old. I can't do this anymore. And he was soon caught. So I think sending messages in that way, sending this um, this item that would be recognizable. You know, I have to imagine that for those few slaves that managed to escape, that was one way people tried to reconnect. They tried to, once out of bondage, trying to find their relatives the best they could. Yes. And that was such a common scenario. You know, someone desperate to see a family member or wife or a husband again would, when leaving the plantation, so inevitably be going to wherever the person, other person had been sold that the slaveholders would predict where they were going in that way. You know, they would run ads in papers saying, like just giving a physical description of a fugitive and then Often the ads would include, you know, maybe headed to X place because they have a relative there. Right. Which I find remarkable because on the one hand, white owners have convinced themselves that black people don't feel grief the same way. On the one hand, they could believe that. And on the other hand, they could be rational enough to know that, yes, indeed, (laughs) surely these people, if given a chance, would be trying to get back to their loved one. This pretty smart, you know, attempt to circumvent their uh, slaves' escape betrays the extent to which slave owners did, in fact, understand that the people they had enslaved were people. You know, in most ways, I'd say slaveholder ideology was very much trying to rationalize away things that they actually saw in real life up front 
that they had to find some way to deal with. Humans don't like cognitive dissonance very much and will go to great lengths to try to minimize it. And it, it being a slaveholder has to be sort of a, a marathon exercise in cognitive dissonance. I often hear people say, oh, white people didn't think these people were human. I always have to rebut that with, oh, but here is one more sign that they knew they were human. Here's another sign. Here's another sign. Here's another sign. So I talk, for instance, about Thomas Chaplin, who's one of those people who did leave some documentation. He says at one point that the people left behind are disconsolate. But he made a decision to sell 10 people because he was in debt. The sheriff was going to come and seize them. And he wanted to sell them directly so that he could get enough money to pay off the debt and possibly have some money left. And so he sends them to the market. He names them, gives their first names in his diary. And he talks about the grief that the people still on his farm felt about losing their family members. And he says, maybe they'll see each other again. I feel really bad sending these people to be sold to, you know, not who's going to buy them. They're not being sold for any fault of their own. And then he says, but I hope they bring a, a good price in the market and that I won't have to do this again. You have um, somebody like Thomas Jefferson. On the one hand, in Notes on the State of Virginia, he says, these Negroes don't feel as deeply as white people feel. They don't have the same capacity for, for deep feeling as we do. But you see him when he was president writing a letter back to Monticello to say that a particular man who had been accused of murdering another enslaved man, he says, if the courts don't punish him, then sell him to Georgia because being separated from their families is the worst thing for them. It's like death to them. That's just one of the kinds of contradictions that you find. But I think, you know, we should expect to find contradictions in a system that one set of people using another set of people. You've got to find ways to tamp down the awareness that you have. So you, you may not even get to guilt because you're tamping down the consciousness of what you're doing to other people. Wow. Yeah. A pretty damning indictment. <laughs> yes. Especially of Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is part of what makes Jefferson so interesting as a figure to study because he's kind of just filled with these contradictions. Like he's, yeah. he's hyper aware of how wrong all of this is. I mean, this example of leveraging people's emotions as punishment right. is a striking one. So to bring this to some kind of a conclusion, uh, Rebecca, could you remind me of what happened uh, to Joseph Fawcett at the end of his life? He was able to buy his wife and a number of his children out of slavery in the 1830s, and they moved to Ohio, to Cincinnati, and were able to get most of their children, they had 10 altogether, out of slavery by the 1850s. And they were really influential in their community in Cincinnati. They were preachers and caterers and activists. They participated in the Underground Railroad. One of their daughters sheltered fugitive slaves. The descendants, the people who came you know, after them in their line, were also activists along that same line. One of their descendants, William Monroe Trotter, was a journalist who wrote anti-lynching columns in the early 20th century, for example. 
So in some ways, the faucets were a success story. I think that's right. But it also seems like they just illustrate how resilient people are, how resilient humans are, and how much people can bounce back from degradation, which I guess is another way of saying that the fact that they found success for themselves doesn't doesn't somehow change the real horror of what the experience is enslaved people and as people who are separated from their families uh, at a time when that kind of separation really meant a, a kind of social death. Okay, so I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Next time, we'll be talking about slavery on the frontier in the early 19th century, and we'll also just be talking in general about revolts and rebellions. And we'll be doing that by talking about Charles Delande, the leader of a revolt in Louisiana in 1811. Until then, this is the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. My name is Jamel Bowie. And I'm Rebecca Onion. And we will see you next time. You can read an excerpt from Heather Andrea Williams's book, Help Me to Find My People, The African-American Search for Family Lost in Slavery, as part of the Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. Want to prepare for episode four of the Academy? You can read ahead. Rebecca and Jamel will talk to Joshua Rothman about how slavery fueled the settlement of the Western frontier. Find an excerpt from Joshua's book, Flush Times and Fever Dreams, a story of capitalism and slavery in the age of Jackson, in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy.